I was reminded this morning as we were singing together, um, not only just singing these truths to God and ascribing to what is due, um, the words that are due to his name to describe his character and what he's done, but the other function of our singing is that we are singing to one another. We're reminding one another of these truths. So, you know, as we were singing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. You know, I'm thinking of people here. I'm, you know, please turn your eyes to Jesus. We're encouraging one another. We're exhorting one another to do that. You know, all glory be to Christ our King. Remind each other of that. That's what we're doing as we're singing. So it's just a joy to be here with you this morning and to be under uh, the authority of the word. So we're going to jump into it. We're going to jump into John 12, starting at verse 12. We'll read through verse 36. So John 12 says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. This is God's word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you between the reading and the preaching of your word. 
because we need your spirit here among us, working through your word and working in our hearts so that we might hear and understand what Jesus is saying to us this morning. Father, to whom shall we go? It is you who has the words of eternal life. We have beheld your glory. Father, all of us like sheep have gone astray and gone to our own ways. I'm reminded of my own sinful tendencies to um, fall away from your word, to not follow what your word says. But Father, in that very rebellion, you have laid on your son the iniquity of us all. So we thank you for that gift of grace this morning. Father, this word this morning can be difficult for us to hear. It's against our human nature, so we need your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was the early 1700s in northern Germany when two men, John Leonard Dobert and David Nitschmann, first heard about this island in the West Indies. These two men were sitting in a Sunday service, much like this, when the pastor began speaking of a remote place in the West Indies where there had never been any gospel witness. It was an island where an atheist slave owner lived, owning about 3,000 slaves, all who would live and die there without ever having a chance to hear of Jesus. Now, disturbed by what they heard, these two men, both in their early 20s, made the decision to go to this very place to reach these slaves with the message of the gospel. Their plan to do this, you ask? They would sell themselves into slavery so that they could live among these people sell themselves into slavery. These men weren't going to Africa to visit an orphanage. They were going to live, die, and suffer as slaves so that these people might hear about Jesus and they might never come back. Their family and friends were mostly all against their decision, but yet they prepared to go. And so the story goes that these two men arrived at the pier, ready to board the ship with their friends and family staying there behind them to say goodbye, sure they would never see them again. And as these two men boarded the ship, the ship moved away from the shore into the sea. These men raised their arms and said these final words. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. That previous morning, when these men were sitting in church, they understood that their lives were not their own, that they were bought with a price, the blood of Jesus. And they also came to know that there were others who had not heard of Christ, who has bought a company of peoples to himself with his blood. Therefore, they knew that they must forfeit their hopes, their dreams, and their plans. They knew they needed to imitate Christ and learn to die, so that in dying, they might have life everlasting. So this morning, it is my goal to motivate you to respond to Jesus' call here in John 12, to follow him in his death. As followers of Christ, we must look to the very example that God the Father has set for us in Jesus. And so I'll have two points uh, later on that I'll lay out for you that I believe the text is making. But first, I think it's important that we set the scene so that we can see this drama play out. So Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is filled with building intensity. It was Passover, an already exciting and intense time itself. And looking back just before this entrance, Jesus had raised his Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And now, not only were the chief priests and Pharisees seeking to kill Jesus, but also they were seeking to kill Lazarus because at his account, many of the Jews were coming to Jesus. 
The crowd surrounded as they shouted, Hosanna, which was a cry of anticipation for this coming king. They saw Jesus as their deliverer. Palm branches filled the air in the streets as symbols of the nationalistic pride and the political aspirations that they had already set in their mind for Jesus. They fully expected Jesus to follow this entrance by issuing a call, a call to arms to drive out the hated Romans from their land. Yet, riding in on a humble donkey, Jesus was the king of kings which nobody understood. He wasn't the weapon-bearing king that they had wanted. And if the intensity of the scene couldn't heighten anymore, Jesus knew that, he was, knew that he would soon be betrayed and handed over, whipped and mocked, beaten and crucified. Not just at the hands of sinful men, but ultimately at the hands of an almighty father. Now we know that these words were written and ordered purposefully by John the author. But doesn't this section seem a little odd to you as you read it? It'd be easy to see this passage in three different sections. You have the triumphal entry, the Greeks seeking to see Jesus, and then Jesus' short parable with his explanation of what would soon happen in his death. But I believe that John has this very event recorded for us to take notice and to see that these scenes are serving to the same point. And that point being that people want to follow Jesus, but people don't understand what it actually means to follow Jesus. Looking at verse 20 in John 12, John highlights the presence of some Greeks who had a desire to see Jesus. The presence of the Greeks at the Passover was not unusual by any means. And I believe that it's important to realize that the presence of Greeks coming to Jesus isn't a new phenomenon either. In fact, the picture of the nations coming and wanting to see Jesus started at the time of the Incarnation. It was wise men who had come from the East wishing to see Jesus. And then here in John, Shortly before the cross, the Gentiles were coming from the west to see him. So this isn't a new concept for us to consider. There were Gentiles seeking Jesus from the beginning to the end of his life. Moving forward now, we get to the moment where Jesus speaks. And he says, The hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Greg set this moment up for us quite well last, um, last week as he said that the time was drawing near for the Son of Man to be glorified, but now we have arrived. I'd like to admit that I missed the weight of this point in my initial study of this text. And after being made aware of it, I realized the weight of Jesus' statement here. And it's essential for us to realize. In case you might too might not have seen this point until now, let's look at it together. All throughout the book of John, we have seen time and time and time and time again that Jesus' time had not yet come. Some people sought to make him king. Others sought to arrest and kill him. But his death was not going to go by the plans of mortal men, but instead by the holy God, his Father. For his time was drawing near and had now come. We reach the point where all the intensity of the story is building up to. Where Jesus says that the hour had now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And by the Son's glorification, the Father would glorify his own name. What was this hour? What would it look like? For what purpose would this hour serve? And we see the answer first explained in Jesus' short parable, starting in verse 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. With the beginning scene, with the king and his triumphal entry, 
than the pursuit of him, we can imagine how stinging these words might have been to these people. Jesus here is explaining what kind of king he would be. A king that would rule and be glorified through death, not conquest. So now we have the scene set. And I believe that this morning we need to be reminded of two very important deaths as we seek to follow Jesus, imitating his dying so that we might have life. So point number one, the glorious death of the Son of God. What does this death look like? And what does it accomplish? Jesus begins speaking to the people who have gathered by saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified, Jesus, we see now that you're heading to your death. How can your dying be the means of your glorification? Jesus told us earlier in John 6, 38, that he didn't come to do his own will, but rather the will of him who sent me. So it was his Father's very will that he would be sent into this world to live, suffer, and die. And what was Jesus' response to this, that the hour had come? Verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. Some say the reason our Lord was troubled was that he was contemplating the physical horrors of the cross, the crown of thorns that would be placed down on his head, his flayed back unevenly pressed against the rough wooden beam of the cross, the nails piercing through the nerves of his hands, the agony of constantly pulling himself up to get a breath. But if that's what we think the Lord was fearing, we do him an injustice. Jesus, the spotless lamb, whose soul had never been tainted with sin, would soon be bearing the full wrath of God for the sins of the world. It's just as 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. This was the coming work that troubled his soul greatly. And he knew that it was for this very work why he had come to this hour. So Jesus says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We see Jesus' heart put on display here. We're coming to the most important event that has ever happened in the world, the crucifixion of Jesus. And what was all that Jesus wanted? He wanted the Father to receive glory. Jesus, throughout his life and ministry, had always been about giving glory to the Father. He wanted his Father to make much of his name, to lift up his name above every other name. And God responds from heaven, confirming that he has and that he surely will continue to do just that. In the Old Testament, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah of this coming Savior King, who would experience death for us in Isaiah 53. So we're going to read Isaiah 53 just verses 2 through 7. I think it's up on the screen for you. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This powerful picture tells us what the Savior would have to suffer. And this should have you sitting on the edge of your seat. It's a clear explanation of what he would experience during this hour so that you and I would not have to. I want to jump back in Isaiah a couple verses to Isaiah 52, verse 13, which reads, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. When it says that he has acted wisely, another translation would be success. He has acted with success, meaning that he would succeed in bearing all the guilt of sinful men. And we know this side of the cross that he did succeed. The reign of sin and death no longer has a hold on us because of his death and resurrection. Therefore, I want to appeal to you all this morning that it's only in Christ that you might find new life and soul satisfaction. Whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or are here this morning and wouldn't even consider yourself to be a Christian, or maybe you've been feeling like you have to fight an upward battle with all this Jesus stuff because there's no way that he could love you in the sin and deep brokenness that you're experiencing right now. Brothers and sisters, life and satisfaction is found only in Christ. If there is any kind of brokenness you find yourself in this morning, please hear that the hour has come and is now past. The work has been finished and Jesus has become broken for you. If there's anyone here that is feeling lonely and therefore you find yourself running to relationship after relationship or maybe you run to pornography because it seems like nobody wants to love you, hear this. Jesus loves you fully and perfectly for he laid down his very life for you. Or Christian, right now, if you find yourself in a dry and desert place without any lively affection in your heart for Jesus, and I've known this place all too well at times, may you find rest in the fact that Jesus has drawn near and wants to know you intimately through his word. Just several weeks ago, I heard a preacher named Mike Bullmore paint this picture of what Christ accomplished for us in his death. And this picture had a profound impact on me. So I want to share it with you this morning. Let me paraphrase what he said. Imagine the day that you come to heaven and are face to face with Jesus. He says, hello. You respond, hi. Jesus, comes, Jesus says, come on in. The feast is ready and the celebration will never end. And while this sounds great to you, you pause before you step forward and you sheepishly say, well, Jesus, what about that one sin? What do you have to say about that? And Jesus looks upon you with a compassionate and confident look as he says, everything that has needed to be said about that sin has already been said at the cross. Welcome home. Brothers and sisters, this is the king that we serve. In his very dying, he has produced much fruit, which is the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with the Father for us. Welcome home, sinner. This is the glorious Christ that we adore. Now, the glorious death of the Son of God was not just for you and I sitting here this morning, but it's for all peoples that the Father is drawing in to himself. In his death, he would purchase a people of God's own possession from every tribe, language, and nation. Take another look at verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, 
will draw all people to myself. The great Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards comments on this verse as so. When Christ hung dying upon the cross, he was doing that which was the most wonderful act of love that ever was. And the posture that he died in was very suitable to signify his free and great love. He died with his arms spread open as being ready to embrace all that would come to him. He was lifted up on the cross above the earth with his arms thus open, and there he made an offer of his love to the world. By this love he drew men to him, as he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What a wonderful gift of grace it is that Jesus would die on the cross bearing the full wrath of God for your sins and for mine. But he didn't do just that. He paid for the sins of all people who would come to him from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now point number two that I believe this text is wanting us to see. Our continual death to self. Now that we've seen what the glorious death of the Son of God looks like and accomplishes, let's look back at the text which we're setting our focus on this morning. There is a call that Jesus gives us to follow him. Hear this. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is calling us to die to ourselves continually. Jesus dying for our salvation is also the very dying for our imitation. This doesn't leave us mysteriously wondering what it looks like to follow after Jesus' lead. It has been outlined clearly in his word for us. Dying to self continually. I'd argue, as I believe this passage also argues, that dying to self is necessary in order to follow Jesus. Now what does this look like? Jesus tells his disciples, and in the same way us, in Matthew 16, what this looks like. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Do you notice the language here? It's the same language that Jesus used in John 12. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus says that to follow him is to deny yourself, to oppose yourself, to nullify or negate self. Now hear me out. We don't hate our lives and walk around all sad and miserable all the time. We love our lives because God has graciously given us life. But here realize where Jesus is going when he said this. He's going to the cross and he calls us to follow him in dying. In the same way that Jesus is continuing to choose to go to the cross, he's also saying that if you're going to follow him, you need to follow him in his death. And your death will consist of dying to yourself, dying to your hopes, dying to your dreams, and dying to your plans. When you follow Christ, his hopes are your hopes, his dreams are your dreams, and his plans are your plans. That's what following means. You take on that of whom you're following. A dear friend of mine reminds me frequently in our discipleship huddle 
Mark, when you follow Jesus, it's not like wearing a backpack where you carry other things with you. When you follow Jesus, you're carrying a cross, and that is all you're able to carry. Just as Christ suffered for us, as we read earlier in Isaiah 53, we too know that in this world we will suffer. Our lives are like a blank check before God where he and he alone gets to fill out the purpose and extent to that which that check will be used for. I'm reminded of Revelation 6 when the Lamb is opening the seven seals of the scroll. And after the Lamb opens the fifth seal, John says, And I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When you follow Christ, God gets to decide the extent to which you will suffer for your witness. And there are yet some who will be killed for the word of God and for their witness. Now there might be a question running through your head now, and I want to answer that if this is you. You might be thinking, what is the point of this inevitable suffering? Is it pointless suffering? And the answer I think we see in Scripture is a resounding no. It's not pointless suffering when dying to yourself means that you find life. And when you lay down your life in service to Jesus, God the Father will surely honor you. Now there's one more piece of scripture that we need to look at this morning. So flip with me if you have a Bible. It'll also be on the screen. To Colossians 1.24. Colossians 1.24 says, Paul is speaking of his ministry here. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you that there is nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions. Christ's suffering for your salvation was perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So what is Paul talking about here? I think that Pastor John Piper frames this piece of scripture well when he says, what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ today is a personal presentation on behalf of Christ to those for whom he died. A personal presentation of suffering to those for whom he died. And Paul says, that's my job. In my sufferings, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions by making a personal, personal presentation of suffering to those for whom he died. And you're called to do that. In my sufferings, they see Christ's sufferings. The price will be suffering. In dying to yourself, your hopes, dreams, and plans, you get to make a personal presentation of suffering to those in the world who have yet to follow him. This suffering might look different for many of you. Notice what Paul says at the beginning of Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Now at first glance, you might be thinking that Paul is a lunatic, but let's think about why Paul would rejoice in his suffering. Well, let's answer the question, what does Paul say the point of his suffering was? The point was so that through his personal presentation of suffering, he might be able to point people who have never heard of Jesus to Jesus. Can't we agree that's something to rejoice in? People who have never heard get to hear. And when you have seen and beheld his glory, isn't that something you want for others too? People, you know, come and turn your eyes to Jesus. 
Look at verse 35 and 36 in John 12. Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. Can you also hear the urgency in these words? Walk while you have the light because it's going away soon. Believe in the light while you have the light. We've heard almost every week for the last several months that these words were written and recorded so that we may believe. So believe in Jesus, the light. Now, the urgent situation that we need to realize today is that there are currently about 7,143 unreached people groups in this world. These are ethnically, linguistically diverse people groups scattered across the globe for who the most part are born, live, and die and are spending an eternity in hell without ever knowing about the Savior who gave up his life for them. And as Christians, we get the immense privilege to be God's message bearers to these people. Why are these 7,000 groups the last groups in the world to hear? Because they are hard places to go to, and they are hard people to live among. All the easy places and peoples have been taken. It's going to require suffering. And from what we just read this morning, we get the wonderful opportunity to die to ourselves and then to join into God's plan of redemption for the world by making a personal presentation of suffering to those for whom he has died. We hold our lives as blank checks before God where he gets to write the amount and the purpose for which our lives are used. For when we die to ourselves, including our hopes, dreams, and plans, we are resurrected and joined together with Christ with his hopes, dreams, and plans. For his hopes, dreams, and plans are far better for you and his name. Rewind back to the beginning when I spoke of the two men who sold themselves into slavery to reach the group of slaves in the West Indies. Their final words as the ship left the harbor were, May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. These are also the words that I want to leave you with this morning. Instead of giving you application from the text, I want to give you three questions that I have for you. And I want you to think about these either personally, as a couple, or as a family as you go into this next week. Question number one, has the Lord obtained the reward of his sufferings in your life? Has the Lord obtained the reward of his sufferings in your life? Question number two, has the purchase that Jesus made at the cross obtained everything from your hand? If not, what are you still holding on to? Has the purchase that Jesus made at the cross obtained everything from your hand? If not, what are you still holding on to? And question number three, is he worthy to be glorified by all peoples? Is he worthy to be glorified by all peoples? And I hope that your response with me this morning would be a resounding, he is. Would you guys pray with me? Oh, Father, we adore you. You are the very one who came into this world, lived a perfect life. You gave us an example by which to live by, though we won't do it perfectly. Father, you 
loved us to such an extent that you would allow your own son, that you would plan to have your own son to suffer and die on the cross for our sins so that we might live in communion with you. And Father, as we consider the ways that you are calling us to follow you this morning, to follow you in your death, dying to ourselves, we think of and are mindful of the people in our own lives, in our own community, and in this world who have no chance of hearing about you unless we are faithful and we go and we proclaim and we love you in such a way that they will see you. So Father, as we sing this last song, may we consider the ways that you have been worthy from the beginning of all of our praise adoration. Father, you are worthy to be slain and to purchase people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In your name we pray. Amen.